Hello, hello. Happy Sunday, Elliot. How are you doing? Hey, good to see you, Rovic. Or rather, good to hear from you. Since, after all, we are still in our remote studios recording these episodes of SG Explained. Hi to all our lovely listeners. It's good to be with you all again. We've had a pretty exciting past week, actually. You know, this is the 29th of November we're recording. And in the past week, there's been a couple of different things that have happened. You know, we released our... Uh, a cocktail scene episode which i think we were both very proud of as of just a mountain of knowledge over there elliot you and i both also are posting about as you explained to our own socials we promised that we were trying to engage our community a bit more and it was really cool to see some of the stuff that people were posting and talking about oh yeah definitely actually i'm surprised by a number of people who actually tune in into the show uh i received a couple of dms sharing with me some of their favorite spots in gatong some of the listeners who also uh, and this was just like what maybe this morning or maybe last night I read the DMs this morning and they were showing me some of their favourite drinks which they say are like Singapore specials uh, like places like Operation Dagger they do have some very unique approaches to cocktails so hey keep those keep those uh, suggestions coming in we love hearing from you guys and girls uh, all the time uh, the more the merrier man this show wouldn't exist without our listeners as well exactly and there was also managed to be a guest on Norman, he invited me on a show, Pod Lovers Asia, where they talk about the podcasting scene in Asia. And I managed to give a bit of a, you know, shout out to SG Explained as well as some of the other stuff that we're doing in the podcasting scene. If you want to learn a bit more about the meta story of SG Explained, about how Elliot and I think about podcasting, you can hear my version of it on Pod Lovers Asia. We've had a lot of exciting stuff this week. Today, we're going to bring you guys through. Actually, the inspiration for this episode was because of the amount of resources that we use from these guys. They're long-standing, I put in air quotes, you guys can see this, but long-standing supporters of our series uh, just because I take so much information uh, from our National Library. I don't know that much about the history of the National Library. So today, we're going to dig through the past and the present of uh, where our National Library Board begins. I think it's important to identify that I say the public library system in general, you know, while a lot of countries do have some version of it. The Singaporean investment into our library network is actually one of the biggest out there. Whenever my friends come to Singapore and they see the National Library in Boogies, they're always very surprised because that's a huge building and it's really a, a testament to the commitment towards education and knowledge that we have in Singapore. I think it's something we definitely take for granted because, you know, when you think about public libraries in, let's say, a huge country like the US, uh, actually being a member of one particular library group doesn't give you access to everything like we do, right? When, we, when you're a member of the National Library in Singapore, it's like every national library in Singapore is at your disposal. So it's really quite a vast system. It helps that we're a tiny little country. So the National Library Board is a statutory board that was established on 1st September 1995. So that's after I was born, actually. Yeah, me too, me too. So that's the thing, right? While it was a statutory board established in 1995, actually the history goes much longer. Right now, it currently manages the National Library, a network of public libraries, the National Archives of Singapore, as well as a digital library that encompasses a range of electronic resources. Over the last two decades, the NLB has increased the number of public libraries from 10 in 1995 to the current 26. And at the same time, it's reinvented the role of libraries from just book lenders to now venues for research, social learning spaces where people can participate in activities 
and learn through interacting with one another, as well as, you know, through the provision of electronic resources, just an overall source of knowledge for people. It's spearheaded a number of nationwide initiatives to promote reading and learning, and it's really one of the drivers in improving information literacy in Singapore. It's actually much more than that, right? So we always think of libraries as a place we can like rent movies and books and stuff. But actually modern day libraries allow you to even rent stuff like video games, like current day video games. I think that is something which a lot of people don't know. I've been taking advantage of that. When I was in university, I was doing that. But now I know a lot more people are getting on board that bandwagon. But I'm going to let you know that the beginnings of the National Library actually starts in 1823. More than <laughs> more than 100 years <laughs> before it becomes a stat board, uh, the National Library has its roots in 1823. And actually, it was tied to our first educational institute here in Singapore, known as the Singapore Institution, which... Now we know as Raffles Institution, founded by none other than name that appears way too often in our shows, Sir Stanford Raffles. So basically, when uh, Stanford Raffles proposed setting up an educational establishment in Singapore, he also envisioned that a library was needed to support the educational aims of Sid College. So this was kind of like the seeds of the National Library at the very beginning. He knew, okay, if we want to take education seriously, it's going to require uh, the right kind of academic resources to have longevity within a nation country like this. When he came aboard in 1823 and, you know, formed Singapore Institution, the building was only completed in like, what, 1837? Back then, there's this guy called Dr. Robert Morrison. He was an eminent like missionary, philanthropist, and educationist. He was the first librarian and he played a key role in the early developments of the library. Being a part of a Singapore institution, this library was only open to its students and staff back then. However, for 25 cents a month, a member of public could use the library and borrow books as well. It's like a membership cost. However, following increasing public calls for the library to be open beyond just school hours, the Singapore Library was formed and officially opened on 22nd January 1845. And the invited members of the public could use the library after paying their monthly subscription of $2.50. And the Singapore Library was the first subscription library that we had in this little island state. The function of the library was also expanded in 1849 with the mandate to administer like a museum as it was considered to be in close connection with the library for the elucidation of Malayan history. Even back then, people were thinking of like journaling their time, uh, journaling the particularly Malayan experience and Malayan history. Quite interesting. We think back about what colonial times were like and the British get a very bad rep for stealing everything, like taking all the relics, the treasures and put it in their museums. I was pleasantly surprised that they were actually taking off, you know, somehow preserving culture. It wasn't simply like, okay, we're coming here to colonize. We must... Uh, track the, the history of this place. And with the passing of a resolution by uh, the Legislative Council in 1873 for colonies to contribute products depicting the antiquity and physical characters of the Strait Settlement, uh, a local museum was deemed to be a useful addition. And from the 16th of July in 1874, the Singapore Library became known as the Raffles Library and Museum. So its first name change. And the Raffles Library and Museum has come up quite a bit in some of our other episodes. Mm-hmm. It's really one of the first institutions for knowledge gathering and access, I guess, to research and, and publications that were there in the straight settlements. So the Raffles Library and Museum is really quite a, a foundation piece of the development of Singapore as a knowledge hub. Even, even in 1874, right, the Raffles Library and Museum actually consisted of uh, several arms or, or wings, so to speak. Uh, it had the reference library, that the lending 
library and like a reading room. So this kind of catered to over like 4,000 visitors in 1875. 4,000 visitors back then is, I would say, I would say it's quite a number. La. These were mostly like naval officers and travelers in transit. However, only a handful of the local population, either it's the local Eurasians, Europeans or Chinese, they hadn't, you know, started to use the library as that resource back then. But still, the fact that we placed investment into it is actually a huge uh, stepping stone, I think, in the establishment of this. The National Library has since its early days, actively tried to boost its collection of rare or scholarly materials, especially on the heritage of Singapore, Malaysia, and the region. Some notable donations in those years included a box of books from the trustees of the library and Museum of Victoria, Australia. The 1875 annual report stated that 2,000 books were purchased and literary agents had helped to increase the Library of Malayan Literature. In addition, the Colonial Secretary's Office received gazettes and reports from the government, which were subsequently handed over to the library. Among the National Library's literary treasures is one really rare book of great historical importance. It's actually named in Old English, but rather than trying to butcher it in front of you, I'm going to read it in today's English. It's basically the history of travel in the West and East Indies and other countries lying either way towards a fruitful and rich Molokas, Malaku Islands, you can call it either way, are an archipelago in eastern Indonesia. So it's really one of the earliest books about sea voyages. It's printed in 1577. The reason why Bove has to say that he is reading it in modern day English is because you probably won't be able to recognize some of the words, such as travel, how they would spell it back then. It was like T-R-A-U-A-Y-L-E, countries, like C-O-U-N-T-R-Y-S. This is easily a rare historic relic that we try to like build collection up with even back in the day and you would see later on that a lot of the things that we have right now in our, in our so-called treasures actually hold some sort of importance since you know Singapore has gone through let's put it this way uh, a number of regiment changes right it's interesting the fact that they were procuring a lot of books not even for like local consumption at the point in time but housing them here it kind of says a lot as to how they wanted to develop Singapore they really saw it as a hub. It wasn't a, you know, just come in uh, for like a for like a quick trip to colonize. No, no, no. This this was long term investment. It's it's a theme, which comes up time and time again in our exploration of Singapore's past. It continued to to kind of grow both in size and in terms of collection. But, you know, it was much, much later in 1887, uh, 12th October 1887 to be specific, where the governor of Singapore, Sir Frederick Weld, officially opened the new building of the Raffles Library and Museum. So a man named Dr. R. Hanich from the University College Liverpool was appointed as a new creator and librarian in June 1895. So quite some time later after they moved into this new building. The title of creator and librarian was changed to director. So something which we carried on to this very day. Uh, so as to be uniform with like, you know, similar appointments in the Strait Settlement and Federated Malay States. Hanich thus became the first director of the Raffles Library and Museum in September 1908. Hanich uh, made a number of significant contributions uh, to the development of the library, such as being one of the first librarians to conduct uh, a survey of visitors and creating the Singapore History Collection and publishing a new catalogue after it had relabeled and renumbered all the works in the library. So <laughs> I don't know if anyone has tried to ever renumber and relabel all the works in the library before, but this guy did it. That's mad. This is years, right? He started in 1908. Imagine this, right? It, since 1823 all the way to 1908. 
the number of books we must have amassed by that point in time. Uh, the annual reports of the 1930s stated that the library grew in popularity as a result of a number of initiatives such as increased purchases, uh, reorganization of non-fiction sections, and the distribution of quarterly bulletins of new titles, as well as the periodic announcement of lists of new acquisitions in the local newspapers. So it really, you can see that it really was kind of like central, this idea of sending out information and connecting with the locals. It's, it's a good start la, at the very least. It's about outreach. We move on into 1932, where a legal section was formed, which comprised of all publications on law, enactments and ordinances of the Strait Settlement and the Malay States, uh, government gazettes and all printed matter of like official natures. Uh, such materials from the Strait Settlement can still be found in the National Library. So if you're thinking about, well, if I want to learn a little bit more about the standard of law, right? What was what was written in paper or written in stone, so to speak? We can still find those things in our current national library. It's no wonder that to this very day we still see a lot of value uh, in using our national library as like an archive center of our past. It would be very scary if we lost everything. Yeah, in yeah, 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 yeah. Which uh, ties very well with our next section about the Japanese occupation. For two weeks before Singapore fell to the Japanese on 15 February 1942, the British and Australian forces actually occupied the library as a regimental aid station. It was only closed to be reopened officially on 29 April 1942 on the occasion of the birthday of the Japanese emperor. So the Raffles Library and Museum was renamed the Sionan Hakubutsu Khan as the museum, as compared to the library, was more eminent during the pre-war period. And we talked about this, if you remember, during the Botanic Gardens episode. So it was a very similar treatment towards the conservation of the Botanic Gardens as well as the Raffles Museum. The library section was known as the Sionan Toshokan and was headed by Makui Yoshichika Tokugawa, who was related to the Emperor of Japan, a situation that was propitious to the safeguarding of the library and its collection. Amid general destruction to many buildings during the war, the library actually remained largely unscathed, with only about 500 reference books lost through looting or damage, which actually, in my opinion, is 500 too many. This was a marginal amount in the grand scheme of things, compared to the destruction and losses suffered by other libraries in Malaya. Thankfully, our National Library managed to really get through it with minimal loss. It was largely through the reputation of the Raffles Museum, as well as the commitment of two individuals. And these are familiar names that you remember from the Botanic Gardens episode. Professor Hidetsu Kanagatate from Tohoku Imperial University and E.J.H. Connor, a former assistant director of Gardens Wolf, of whom were committed to learning as well as preserving library materials of historical interest. Tanagatate was instrumental in an attempt to rescue books and collections from damaged houses and offices, and as a result, lorry loads of books and journals were retrieved from the libraries of civil service departments. In just one month, more than 40,000 books were brought into the Raffles Library to really conserve all the books and journals that were happening. Put this into context a bit, right, on how important this was. I just read this book about the Japanese occupation called How We Disappeared, and it was one of the first books I've personally read about a more narrative view of what happened. It's historical fiction, but it's still a narrative view of what happened. And you just get the sense that everything was up for the Japanese soldiers back then, up for their control and for their own exploitation. And so, you know, if they really wanted their way, they could do whatever they wanted to the book. But because of the intervention of some of these people, we were able to actually protect and conserve that. And 
that has affected our trajectory a lot because imagine if we lost all of the history and all of the knowledge, our trajectory could have been quite different. We joked a bit about making a movie about uh, both Connor and uh, Tanaka Date. It would be a really great story. Like the more we talk about them, right, the, the better the prospects of making said movie. Actually, Elliot, you know what? Why don't we just do it? Because we got no money, bro. We can crowdfund. All right, you heard it here first. As you explained, listeners, if you want to contribute to our crowdfund campaign to make a movie about the people who saved our knowledge and our culture during the Japanese occupation, you know, ping us. We just need resources, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) So that was like, thankfully, all that we could find out about the Japanese occupation. That means the library was generally unharmed throughout this entire process, which, you know, I'm pretty happy about. We can then move on into the post-war years, where then we start to see a little bit more governance come into play with the library. After the Japanese surrendered, the library was reopened at the public under British administration on 1st December 1945. The perseverance, steadfastness, and relative safety of the library during uh, the Japanese occupation kind of cemented the role and importance of the library as an emblem of Singapore's cultural heritage and as an epitome of commitment by all to consolidate society through both shared knowledge and experience. Several plans were made to improve services to the public, such as setting up branch library schemes and uh, to create wider access for the local population. So this is the predecessor to the public library program. Where they wanted to you know, move away from just a centralized, one centralized place and say, okay, we need to get these branches out there. There were a lot of like, other proposed changes as well, including setting up like the free library. Uh, and this idea came to fruition with a contribution of $375,000 in 1953 from none other than our good man, the rubber magnet and philanthropist, Mr. Lee Kong Chien. He was always key to promote like the use of vernacular language in the public arena. His donation was also given on condition that the library would be made a public and free library for all. Yeah, and Lee Kong Chien, I mean, just the way he created this condition where he really was trying to be a man that connected to the people. So he was basically saying there's no point in knowledge being accumulated if it's not available for public. And, and that's why we call it the Lee Kong Chen reference library now. It's obviously named after this this great man. La. We have a new face of the library system which then began uh, further in 1950 with the appointment of L.M. Herod, a qualified librarian uh, who became like the new director of the Raffles Library. Now this guy, Herod, played a significant role in expanding and modernizing the library and was also integral in the eventual separation of the library and museum. Uh, he introduced the Brown system to issue books, a system that was used uh, by the libraries until about 1988 uh, when the computerized library system was introduced, as well as translating children's books into Chinese, Malay, and Tamil in a bid to reach out to the local population. Well, the Brown issue system is an old system for loaning library books, and it's basically using the reader's borrowing card. So I don't know if you actually remember when we were very young. I still remember this. Yeah, we still used it back when we were in uh, when we were born. So there would be a borrowing card, and you would remove the book's own card, and you would swap it with your with the reader's borrowing card. And the two cards were filed together, and the date was stamped in the book. So this was really the old way of managing loans. So when the book was returned, the user's card was removed from the file of the day indicated by the stamp and given back and the book card was replaced in the book. It's basically the old version of a computer database. It was all about swapping. Actually, it's funny because it says here that it was until 1988 when we started introducing a computerized library system. But I think I remember using it all the way till I was like probably nine years old. That means 
or maybe eight years old. Probably were. Yeah, transiting. People were still learning how to adopt computer systems. It, it was interesting, right? Like we are part of a, I, I didn't know that that's where we transited actually. <laughs> <laughs> so Harrod's most visible legacy was his joint effort with Lionel Bintley, a British architect, and the Public Works Department to design the National Library building. And the site of the building was along Stamford Road to the south of Raffles Museum. From 1875 to 1940, the St. Andrew's Chapel and school buildings occupied the Stamford Road site, after which it became the British Council building. You may be asking, where is the Raffles Museum? Raffles Museum is basically the National Museum. Now, Lee Kong Chen laid the foundation stone of the National Library at Stamford Road, on 15 August 1957, and that was the National Library building of that time. It was supposed to reflect the red brick epoch of British architecture in the 1950s. It received mixed reviews because many criticized the aesthetics of the building, which stood in contrast to the dignified and Victorian-style architecture of the National Museum. The one good thing about it that people agreed was that it was four times larger than its old size and brought about much needed space. I think what was really cool about Harrod's role in this was that there was a movement towards localization. Uh, that cannot be understated. One of the big reasons why we have all our four major languages being housed under the library system is really thanks to this man. He saw a need for access, not just exclusive access to a privileged group of people, but for literally every kind of Singaporean later on. After which, we have the enactment of the Raffles National Library Ordinance, and this marked the an important milestone in the history of the National Library. Uh, coming into effect on 1st April 1958, it enabled the National Library to provide a free public service for residents in Singapore. So 1958 is that is that particular year. The ordinance also instituted for the library to be the depository library for all publications printed and published in Singapore, a function that continues under the National Library Board Act of 1995. That means every single archive piece piece of the Straits Times uh, from that day onwards still exists in the library. And it's not just newspapers, you know, it's even every piece of Singapore literature that is published in Singapore is also stored in the Singapore library. It really shows the commitment of Singapore as a country, right, to, to say this is important enough for us to create an audience around it that sets up resources and it sets up, you know, the mandate for the library to continue existing and doing its job. So, so far, we've talked about a couple of key people who really helped to protect the library's legacy as well as to progress it towards a more local and publicly accessible place. To be completely fair, a lot of those names were not Singaporean names. The first Singaporean director of the National Library actually happened in 1960, and the person is Hedwig Anwar. She was the first Singaporean director and she held the position for more than two decades, from April 1960 to June 1961, and then again from 1965 to 1988. One of her major tasks was to oversee the laborious mission of relocating the library in November 1960 from the Raffles Museum site to the new building that we just talked about. Dubbed Operation Pinda, all 40-odd members of the library staff form a human chain to pass down 150,000 books and the relocation was complete in just two weeks. That's a crazy <laughs> That's a crazy piece of information that I think very few people know about. The Raffles Library was renamed National Library, which was a symbolic move away from its colonial beginnings and was officially opened by the head of state, Yang Dipertuan Negara, Yusuf Ishak on 12 November 1960. You're thinking about a 40-odd member chain of passing 150,000 books 
in two weeks. They just you just did that for two weeks straight, you know, passing down books. I, I think that's really, really a testament to how committed everyone was. If if my boss said, Hey, we're gonna move 150,000 books in two weeks, right? By doing a human chain, I'll be like, oh my goodness. So a significant contribution by Edwig Anwar, and this contribution in some ways still continues to today, was the setting up of the mobile library services. Through a US $2,000 donation from UNESCO, library vans were purchased and put to use from 1960 as part of the library's efforts at decentralization and reaching out to school children. So mobile library services were introduced in West Coast, Tanjapaga, Nisun, Bukit Panjang, over a period of several years, with Sembawang, Tampanese, Pasipanjang, Gwitima, Changi, and Kaki Bukit added on subsequently. This brought the library to the people, a vision that the first director, Harrod, strongly believed in. It was phased out from the 1980s with the construction of full-time branch libraries and terminated entirely in 1991. The National Library was also able to expand its services to the public by increasing its collections through gifts, donations, and government grants. And Hedwig Anwar retired in 1988 with Yokland Wicks succeeding her as a director until 1992, who actually set up the first full-time branch library in Queenstown. So you have this increasing trend of decentralization and increasing public access. You had the branch libraries, the mobile vans that were being set up, and it moves you know, all the way till 1992 with the first full-time branch library. This, this is a really great story just because you can really see its roots kind of uh, take hold and everyone who succeeds has like an increasingly uh, even more macroscopic vision for what the library should do in service of its people. Every, every single time it's about, okay, more people need access to this. We need a greater collection. We need a bigger venue. All these things require a lot of groundswell and support. I don't think this is a to- just simply a top-down movement. It requires both vision and for people to actively participate in it. One thing we didn't touch on, or rather it was hard to find uh, concrete numbers, was the number of visitors to in the library at this point in time. But I imagine... You know, I can't be certain, but I do imagine that there was enough support on the ground where people were like, hey, look, I can't be going all the way to this particular central library all the time. They're like, yeah, of course. I mean, everyone loves the library. Let's let's do it. This, this to me is very much a good Singaporean spirit. It's a very few good story. But, you know, as with all good things, they will come to an end. Or I guess in this case, just a halt. So our iconic Red Brick National Library at Stamford Road closed its doors uh, for the last time on 31st March 2004, uh, six years after the government announced that the building would be demolished for urban redevelopment. Given the special place that the National Library had in the hearts and minds of many Singaporeans, a year-long series of events was planned to commemorate the closing of one chapter and the beginning of a new one. I actually remember this, you know, I guess it's not very far in our history. But I definitely remember, like, my mom was visibly very upset. She said, like, oh, the library was the best library we've ever had. And then now they're going to close it down for something else. Wow. Really, I'm so affected. I, I, I mean, I like the library. It's a, it's an air-conditioned place. So, obviously, awesome back in 2004. But it, I didn't see the significance until I realized it was a, a place for social interaction. Yes, you have to be quiet, but people would actually hang out at the library at Stamford Road. So its closure, I guess, meant a lot to the general public back then. So half a century later, uh, Lee Kong Chin's legacy and support continued with a $60 million donation uh, for the Lee Foundation towards the development of the new National Library at Victoria Street. Uh, And of course, as we mentioned just now, the reference library is named in honour of Mr. Lee Kong Chin. I mean, it's a very modern-looking building that 
it's supposed to represent the next chapter in the Singapore Library story. It's meant to be a lot more central, a lot more publicly accessible, a lot more emblematic of the role of libraries in the community. So it's not just a place for you to go and read books. It's a place for program. It's a place for all kinds of cerebral engagement. Even theater is a thing which that library supports. So it almost, in a way, acts as sort of like an arts or creative hub uh, for a lot of people. They have their little black box upstairs. And I say little, but it's by no means small. This has become a place for initiatives for creative and you know art-minded folk uh, to go there a lot of students use the reference library for their research. I certainly did. From the early days, it tried to enhance the library user experience and overcome the general public perception that libraries are boring places with shelves full of old books. So there was a series of transformations that happened with a $1 billion fund in 1996. So this is way back when, in order to create the public library network. So we, we talked about this with the branch libraries, with some of the efforts that were going out with the Queenstown Library System. And actually, this included the development of a network of shopping mall libraries to bring the library to the people. So rather than to say, you know, we're just going to have the National Library in the central part of Singapore. If you're in the heartlands, you can't get access to knowledge. It said, let's bring it to the people. It introduced cafes in the libraries to reinvent the reading experience. It added program zones to whole activities such as talks and performances. And it even spruced up the interiors to enhance the attractiveness of library collections by reducing shelf life and stocking out more of the latest bestsellers and award winners. That wasn't just in terms of design. Processes were redesigned. More tech was brought in. And I can remember all of this you know, in places like the Jurong Regional Library, right, which I, I just remember having a cafe there and I would go and sit there and I would you know, beg my mom to, to buy me food. I was a very young, hungry kid. But that was <laughs> part of the library experience. That was what we did. In 1996, they introduced a book drop service to provide greater convenience for patrons returning books because, you know, you didn't have to uh, queue to return the books because there was no longer that book card that we talked about. You could just drop them off and they could do a digital scan. Since 1998, all public libraries were out- outfitted with the automated book drop. In addition, under the book return of any library service, you know, previously you had to return the book at the library in which you borrowed the book. Now, with this new policy, you could return it at any place. And because they had that central system, they were able to quickly, you know, manage it at a national level. Self service borrowing machines were installed in the public libraries in 1998, which also led to reduction in queue time. So, you know, there's a lot of improvements to really make the whole process easier for the public and really introduce technology as a way to improve processes. You know, even now, if you wanted to get a book which was in another library, the closest one for me actually is in Badok, right? Uh, But sometimes I want books that are found in like the Jurong Library. You can just request for them and they'll send it over to the the library at Badok for you to collect. You know, we mentioned this before, there are 26 public libraries and there are three regional libraries in the East, Tampanese, West Jurong, North Woodlands, and these libraries are larger with their own reference sections, and they have a bigger collection compared with the other public libraries. So it's really, you know, hub and node, hub and node kind of mentality. On 22nd March 1996, the first library in a shopping mall was opened at Jurong Point in Jurong West, and now there are, out of the 26 public libraries, about half are located within shopping malls, and three are niche libraries. So the three niche libraries are they, you will notice them because the way that they are called is quite unique. It's called library at, so the email at sign, library at Orchard, library at Esplanade, and library at Chinatown. So library at Orchard is targeted at young adults. It's Singapore's first lifestyle library. 
in the city. I've been there. It's actually pretty cool. It was first located within Neon City Shopping Mall from 1999 to 2007. And then it moved to Orchard Gateway to be more hip here. Uh, on 23rd October 2014, it focuses on design, lifestyle, and applied arts. Library at Esplanade is its first performing arts library open on 12 September 2002. And Library at Chinatown and Chinatown Point Mall focuses on Chinese arts and culture and it was unveiled on 31st Jan 2013. It's really cool how they there's so much effort that went into improving the reach of the National Library to, to various groups of people in Singapore. And then we talked about the Queenstown Public Library. So if you're ever doing trivia and you want to know which is the oldest public library in Singapore, that is the Queenstown Public Library. It was opened on 30th April 1970 by Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew, and it is the first library under the NLB that was gazetted for conservation by the Urban Redevelopment Authority. I don't know if you've been to the Queenstown Public Library, Elliot, but I've been to the current location, and you can really get a sense of like the history and and, and importance of that whole venue. Yeah, unfortunately, I have not been there, but it sounds awesome. And I might want to bring my wife there someday. Well, one of the initiatives I really enjoy, actually, uh, is this thing called the Library Initiative. It has like a two capital L's in front, uh, then I, and then a capital B, uh, R-A. R-Y. Okay, so this was started on 29th November 2014, and the Library Initiative is a collaboration between NLB and the Workforce Development Agency. Uh, it's located at the Lifelong Learning Institute, hence the LLI, you know, like the way it's, it's supposed to be like an acronym. Singaporeans love the acronyms. Located at the Lifelong Learning Institute, which provides training and employment resources for workers, it is actually Singapore's first public accessible library focused on the professional development of working adults. The collection, which is mostly in English, covers areas such as career advancement, vocational guidance, and industry-specific topics. Uh, this is really interesting. For me, because, you know, Singapore, we always talk a little bit about how to transit away from, we're, we're such a fast moving country in terms of development. Some people get caught between the cracks, right? They can't transit fast enough or uh, their skills become slightly irrelevant. That's why I think the government puts a lot of emphasis in uh, skills, future upgrades and, and all that good jazz. So we've talked a bit about the different kinds of library programs and services that are there. I just wanted to talk about three other things that the library has done so far. Uh, in quick bits. So the first is the reference library. We talked a bit about this, but it started, you know, all the way in the early days with the reference department. And now it is a full, I, I think two or three floors uh, in the National Library where it basically provides research and reference information for the general public, government departments, and other information seekers. In fact, there's a quite a lot of information that you have to actually ask for in order to get access for it, and it has a collection size of more than 400,000 print and non-print material. It also has the Heritage Room, which has rare materials of Singapore and Southeast Asia, which has a collection size of around 1,700 items. And, oh, yeah, and so, like we said, this book that was published in 1577, Eden's Travel in the West and East Indies, is actually still there. The second thing I wanted to point to was the digital library. So NLB began its digital presence in 1995 through its website nl.line, which was a subscription-based electronic information system. Uh, now you have a lot of stuff available online. It has library in your pocket, which is a smartphone application that enables on-the-go access to library services. And now you can actually borrow books through what is called Overdrive, right? So Overdrive allows you to borrow library books and read it on your phone, on your mobile device, and it's a really cool way 
to keep getting access to information. The last program I thought to talk about was actually NLB's efforts to improve literacy in Singapore. And, you know, there's a whole reason for literacy. It improves access to knowledge and it broadens your awareness of what is there in the world. Uh, and maybe it's also quite simply a fundamental skill in order to do a lot of other stuff, including research, uh, communication, etc. So National Library has one of its key programs is the Read Singapore program, which is really about books, reading and reading related activities, including book exchanges, Kids Read, which was a children focused program. Some of the cool other projects that actually we've benefited from, Elliot, includes the Singapore Memory Project, which is a whole of government national project launched in 2011 to build a digital database of memories on Singapore by inviting Singaporeans to submit their personal memories and stories. And one other cool project that the National Library Board did was that on 23rd October 2013, it launched an information literacy campaign. So, you know, early in the days of fake news and digital misinformation, it really saw the need to improve literacy and it launched SURE, S-U-R-E, which was short for source, understand, research, and evaluate to promote the importance of information searching and discernment to the general public. So all this to say that it wasn't just about setting up physical library systems out there. It was also about improving access to you know archives and, and, and really, really precious sources of knowledge. It was about digitalization, using technology as a way to engage people, and then finally, with some of these programs and campaigns, really looking at the socio-technical ways that people engage with libraries and to really meet people where they're at, right? And if, if there's one thing I'm proud of Singapore for direct resources towards, it's towards the National Library Board. It's towards the programs that it does because it's one of the foundations to why, just as a culture, Singapore is a lot more educated, a lot more discerning, Certain facts. I think it's a wonderful thing that we have actually uh, kind of relied on making it a step board so that it can it can really have the authority to uh, create these initiatives, right? I think we just wrap up and by talking about a few more of the cool things that if you guys are interested in checking out as well in the National Library space, uh, we have the National Archives of Singapore or NAS for short. Uh, now, the NAS is responsible for the collection, preservation of management of Singapore's public and private archival records. And this, of, of course, to achieve greater synergy in heritage preservation, something which this show is also very, very interested in doing. Uh, the NAS previously, a department under the National Heritage Board, was actually transferred to the National Library Board in November 2012. Uh, and likewise, they have the Asian Film Archive, or uh, the AFA. Uh, it also became a subsidiary of the National Library Board in December 2013. And it was established as an independent, non-profit entity in 2000. With the objective of preserving and promoting the appreciation of local and Asian cinema, uh, very up to date, right? If you think about it, for a modern, for a modern time library to be able to have movies and, like I said earlier, on games as well. The AFA is a collection of over thousand six hundred films. That's a lot of uh, a lot of pieces, and these include classic Malay films from the Cathay Keris Studio, as well as productions by contemporary local filmmakers. Last but not least, uh, in order to engage and involve the community, the NLB actually started this program called Friends of the Library. And in 2001, uh, it started to invite members of the public to become volunteers for the library. Currently, the day-to-day -day operations of library at Chinatown, for example, are run by a pool of over 40 volunteers. So it's it's become more than just 
this is a government initiative. Let's get really people on the ground involved. I think the library has really been a cornerstone of Singapore culture, not just creating it, but also preserving it. And at the end of the day, if there is a call to action for this, is to support the public libraries in their effort to maintain uh, the historical value of Singapore. I think there are many ways that we can do that, right? So the first is, of course, to as simple as visit the library and really just participate in the programs and patronize the different services that they have. You can even use stuff like the digital libraries or overdrive as a way to, to show the relevance of the library in your life. The second way, of course, is if you have deep pockets to donate <laughs> uh, and, and to give back to the library. I'm sure they'll put your name on a plaque somewhere if you're giving above a certain quantum. Uh, or they may even name a library after you. Who knows? <laughs> right? uh, we don't know what our target audience's income levels are, so we're just going to be broad with it. <laughs> uh, and then the third way, as uh, you, know, you just mentioned earlier, is actually volunteer because some of the programs and some of the services do require people to be there to help out and so you can be a friend of the library and, and give back yeah and also I guess I wanted to do this episode to kind of like thank the National Library because without them that actually there won't be a us you know in this case yeah as she explained it's kind of fueled by the National Library itself uh, not monetarily of course but just because of all the free resources they give out and make publicly available we can go in dig up these stories uh, figure out their cultural significance and uh, share that with all of you. So uh, thank you, National Library. This is my tribute or our tribute to you. On that note, thank you for joining us on this episode. We have a cool half a season left. You know, continue to message us on our DMs and on our social on what other topics you'd like us to talk about or what's your favorite experience of the National Library. We'd love to hear that. 